Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Welcome to GodPod 61. And uh, here we are in our usual place. and uh, bunker. Oh, bunker. <laughs> it's... It would be very dark in here if it wasn't for the lights. <laughs> That's true of many places, isn't it? Really? No, not when you're outside. Well, they're, they're, but we're not outside. Natural light. If it weren't for the sun, the universe would be quite dark. <laughs> it would be. That is true. So um, today we have uh, myself, Graham Tomlin. We also have Michael Lloyd. We do. Hello. And Jane Williams. Hello. And we have a guest uh, today, and we're delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Michael Ward. Hello. Or the Reverend Dr. Michael Ward, we should say. Is that right? Yes, I suppose so, if you want to be formal. Exactly. Yeah. Although you obviously don't. <laughs> Most people call me You're Spud. In... They do, Why? actually. <laughs> oh, that's a long and very complicated story. <laughs> but this, is, on air. This, is, this is the God pod. We're very formal here, so we shall call you something official. Okay. Anyway, um, Michael, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And um, Michael, if you uh, don't know, is the author of um, a very significant book on C.S. Lewis, called Planet Narnia that came out a year ago, two years ago? Uh, 2008 it came out. Hey, right, yeah. a little while ago, yeah, two, yeah. three years ago now, which um, which caused quite a stir in um, in a lot of different circles, not just those people who are interested in C.S. Lewis, but uh, even wider than that, there was a, um, a BBC documentary that went out at Easter in 2009, which yep. created a lot of um, interest around C.S. Lewis. And uh, so we uh, may well talk a bit about... Um, the book a little bit later on okay. and um, how it goes. And I think there's another another one that's come out quite recently. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, Planet Narnia was quite long and detailed. And a lot of people said to me, why don't you shorten it and simplify it a bit for a more popular audience? So I've just brought out a more accessible thing called the Narnia Code. Which is to Planet Narnia what the Good News Bible is to the Bible. <laughs> that kind of thing. Is that the idea? Yes, it has some it's nice pictures. pictures. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not very similar to the Da Vinci Code, does it? Have Hopefully, a... nothing like the Da Vinci Code. No, <laughs> Same no. page-turning. We, well, I'm to afraid it. we did, you know, model the title on the Da Vinci Code, obviously. Exactly. But um, no, I think there's uh, a little bit more serious yeah. kind of grounding to the Narnia Code. Exactly. So, <clears throat> Godpaw sixty-one is going to be focused around uh, C.S. Lewis, and like um, it's, it's, it's one of the questions to start off with is um, C.S. Lewis is I mean, wherever you go in the world, in the Christian world. People read C.S. Lewis and and um, appeal to him, and he seems to relate across a wide range of of uh, Christian backgrounds and churches. And it'd be interesting to know, you know, um, why you think that is. Why you think he he quite uniquely, in some ways, has mm. this really eclectic appeal across mm. the whole of the Christian church. Mm. Well, I think it was uh, quite a deliberate stance that he adopted, actually. In his Christian writings, you know, uh, Mere Christianity, which was originally a series of radio broadcasts mm. that he gave during the Second World War, uh, was de- very deliberately kind of situated so that it wouldn't appeal to any one particular denomination mm. or Christian tradition. You know, that's the the whole reason behind the title, Mere Christianity. Yeah. It's supposed to be the broad central tradition yeah. which has been believed in all places by all people at all times. <clears throat> Um, and why he did that? Well, par- partly I think it was because you know he was giving broadcasts on the BBC and and didn't want to be too sectarian because um, he had a you know a national audience to consider. 
And partly I think he would have been like that in any case because he um, that was the way he tended to think. He was quite a a comprehensive thinker, quite a unifying thinker, you know, tried to bring things together mm-hmm. rather than forcing things apart too much. And his own background, having been raised in, born and raised in Belfast, which is one of the most divided, religiously divided communities that you could find anywhere, mm. um, I think that had taught him, you know, how terrible it is to divide unnecessarily on religious lines. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I mean, is there, um, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a clear sort of strategy from his point of view, but, and, but other people have tried that and it hasn't always worked, mm. in other mm. words, to, to present this is sort of basic Christianity that everyone mm. grasps, but... Um, but not everyone would necessarily sort of buy into that. And so there must be something in his skill at doing that that has meant mm. that he succeeded where others have failed in presenting a, a kind of essential Christian version of Christian faith that other people can, that, that you know, all kinds of different Christians can mm. relate to. Mm. Do you have a sense of what, as to what that particular skill was and what it was about his presentation of Christian faith that, mm. that worked in that way? Well, I think in Lewis's case, it, it wasn't just a kind of rhetorical strategy. It was a a deeply felt, deeply believed Mm. uh, position that he had. And, you know, as a as a as a person himself, he was he was not easy to pigeonhole. Um, You know, his own French friendships were formed amongst a very disparate range of people. Mm. Anglicans, um, Roman Catholics like Tolkien, Mm. one of his best buddies was a guy called Owen Barfield, who was an anthroposophist, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, <laughs> Not many of them around these days, are there? <laughs> as well as plenty we'll of letters. We'll get letters. <laughs> as, well, as well as plenty of you know non-Christians and uh, p- people from other faiths altogether. Um, Do you think it's significant that he he doesn't speak as a churchman in that yes. sense? He wasn't yes. ordained. That's right. Um, and his primary audience wasn't. Um, sitting in a in a church, yeah. he was a, a lecturer and a teacher. Yes, by vocation almost, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. And, and whether that's actually part of the skill that he brings to this, I think that's very important. Yeah, that he wasn't ordained. He wasn't speaking as a minister or a priest. He wasn't representing officially any particular church. Um, he was, as it happens, an Anglican all his life. Mm. Um, but I mean, Anglicanism itself, one of its strengths, you might say, is its breadth. Mm. Um, you know, at the, at the low end of Anglicanism, you're, you're more or less indistinguishable from Baptists and Methodists, mm. and at the high end, you're not very far different from Roman Catholics, are you? So within Anglicanism, you have this tremendous range. Mm. Um, and it's one of the things he writes about, isn't it? Is 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 the importance of having to belong to an unchosen community of people mm. that you don't necessarily agree with. It's mm. one of the bits I remember very vividly from the Screw Tape Letters. Um, is about uh, how the, um, the, 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 these minor devils are encouraged to persuade um, new Christians that actually they really shouldn't be wasting their time on these funny old ladies sitting in pews. And, yes. and, and, mm. and, and, and so Lewis is basically saying that this gift of the very diverse community of the church is, yeah. is an important Absolutely. tool. Absolutely, yes. And that was one of the reasons that he liked Anglicanism because he thought highly of the parish system. Mm. Mm that you should go to your local parish church, regardless of how much it might suit your own theological yes. or liturgical tastes, because it was a good discipline. It, mm. it humbled you and reminded mm. you, that, uh, you know, that as a Christian, you are part of Christ's body, 
which puts you alongside all sorts of people that you might not necessarily naturally, mm. socially, uh, choose to spend your time with. Mm. Whereas associational churches, uh, where everybody tends to be very much more of one particular theological stripe, I think don't reflect that aspect of, of the church. And there are not many places that we naturally go to that force you to associate mm. with people of different no. social backgrounds yeah. and linguistic backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and it's expanding of who you are if, yes. you, if you don't simply associate with mm. the like-minded and the, yeah. and the socially yes. uh, similar. No. Yeah. Um, it can be expanding in very uncomfortable ways, can't it? It's, it, it's challenging. It is challenging. <laughs> but yeah. I think perhaps it's meant to be annoying. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Michael, I'd be interested to know how you got into C.S. Lewis in the first place I and mean, what was your first encounter? Can you remember the first time you read him? Was it a sort of eureka moment of, mm. yes, this is amazing? And, uh, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people have read C.S. Lewis but haven't gone on to, to do the kind of study you have. But mm. I'd love to know the, the origins of your interest. Well, I got into Lewis, I think, the same way that many people do. I, I had the Narnia books read to me mm. before mm. I could even read mm. them for myself. Um, my two brothers and I used to jump into our parents' bed on a Sunday or a Saturday morning, and uh, my mum would read us a, a chapter or two before the day began. And that was my first exposure oh. to Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember my parents telling me just a little bit about, you know, the double meaning in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that Aslan was a bit like Jesus mm-hmm. and the White mm-hmm. Witch was a bit like the devil. And that kind of piqued my interest because mm-hmm. I, I thought, oh, that's clever. There are two levels of meaning here. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, spotted... Right <laughs> And yeah, little did I realise that, you know, kind of 30 years later, I I would find a third level of meaning, um, which uh, opened them up in a whole new way. But that was what uh, got me into Lewis. And then I read them for myself when I was a bit older, read his Mm. other fiction and his Christian apologetics, did Mm. an English degree when I started reading his professional writings. And, um, yeah, the more you explore Lewis, the more you realise he's a you know, vast writer, so mm. prolific mm. on so many different subjects in so many different genres that he's yeah. almost endlessly interesting. And, and an incredibly good writer. I mean, he's, yeah. he's incapable of writing boringly. Yes. Um, and whether you read his science fiction works or his works on yeah. English literature mm. or whatever, it, it always kind of sparkles, doesn't it? I think that's one of the reasons mm. why it's been successful in a way that other people mm, trying yep. to do mere Christianity haven't. Yes. Is, is that he just writes scintillating. Yes, I remember, reading, that right. I remember when I was doing my English degree, reading The Allegory of Love. And it just stood out amongst sort of mm. um, critical mm. books on medieval mm. literature yeah. because it was just so well written. It was yes. so, so enjoyable to read, whereas yes. most critical books of yeah. English literary studies and mm. medieval literature are not always mm. a pleasure mm. to read, mm. whereas that one was. Yeah, No, totally. He was a great stylist. And I think going back to mere Christianity, one of the reasons for the success of that was that it was originally radio broadcasts. It was, it was written mm. in order to be heard mm. and to be taken in through the ears rather than through the eyes. Mm. And that's mm. an interesting point too. Yeah, yeah. And it, and I suppose the, the other thing about mere Christianity is it, I mean, going back to the question we were talking about earlier on about how that sort of universal appeal, I suppose it starts in a very universal way. It starts from this experience of morality mm. that we have as human beings mm. and, and it instantly draws you in almost from the first page mm. that whoever you are, Christian, mm. non-Christian, mm. Uh, you can relate to this, this issue. And mm. it seems to have that genius of being able to start with issues of such universal import mm. that, that he draws every, everyone in. That's right. Which I, I guess leads on to the question as to why you think his apologetics were so sort of lasting and effective and um, 
Mm. You know, why is mere Christianity still being read now, well mm. over fifty years, mm. sixty years, I guess, since mm. it was since it was written? Mm. Well, we've already touched on a few reasons. It's it's so stylishly written. It's written in these relatively bite-sized chunks. It was originally fifteen-minute radio broadcast, mm. um, and it's yes, it's very. Uh, it's very uh, preparatory almost. Lewis doesn't start too far down the track. He's not concerned to start out with a defense of, you know, the idea of the existence of God or, or the authority of the Bible or whatever it may be. He's He starts out with a very human situation of two people quarreling on a bus. You know, that was my seat. Why yeah. are you sitting there? Well, I gave you a bit of my orange. Give me a bit of yours. Yeah. And that's, you know, he just puts us straight into a, a very recognizable human situation, yeah. which which he uses then to bring out the question of moral standards. Why do we argue with people unless they and we recognize the same kind of overarching standard, which mm. which applies to us both? That suggests there's something objective and independent about moral standards, ethical standards. Um, and once he's begun to establish that, well, then he's already got you into the territory of, of recognizing the existence of something outside yourself. And then it's, you know, relatively few steps down the road to, to start talking about, you know, some, someone who's created this standard, uh, uh, some kind of yeah. transcendent being, a, a god. And once you've got to the position of a god, well, then it's a relatively short step to the idea of Christ, yeah. who uh, embodies this god in, in human form. Yeah. And um, th th this um, apologetics at which he was so successful, did he um, s talk about... I mean, you call it preparatory. Did he think of it as something that prepared people's ability to to, to receive God? Because when he's talking about his own final acceptance of mm. God, it, there, there's a he he realizes that intellectually you get to a point, mm. but there, you, that's a point where a lot of people stop. Mm. Where you see, okay, that makes a certain amount of sense, mm. but that's never actually going to get you to faith, is that's it? That's right. Mm. Does he talk? I mean, about the limits of apologetics at any point. Yes, he does uh, in one or two places. He he says that, um, you know, conversion is finally something that doesn't happen without the intervention of the supernatural. Mm. That is to say, it needs God's grace in order to transform your perspective on the world. And you can't think or argue yourself into the kingdom of God. You need God's help. You need the, the divine hand lifting you up out of the out of the miry clay as it were. Um, you can't do it in your own strength, and that's all to the good, mm -hmm. because that means that you know we cannot pride ourselves on being so brilliant and intelligent and insightful that, <laughs> that we have you know, worked it all out on our own merits. Um, but that's not to say that you can't present reasons, and that it's not to say that it's not worth presenting arguments uh, that appeal to, mm -hmm. to the reason, and indeed to the imagination. Um, I mean, Lewis sometimes presents the human person as a series of concentric circles. The uh, the middle circle, the core, being the will, which is surrounded by the reason, which is in turn surrounded by the imagination. Mm -hmm. And quite like Augustine, really, isn't it? Yes, yeah. indeed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And to um, to address the imagination and the reason is a worthwhile undertaking, even though. Oh. It's finally the will that has to be transformed, mm. and the will can only be transformed when it, mm. when it's uh, mortified, really, by by yeah. God and, and raised in His Spirit. Mm. And it is 
Sorry, Mike. No, I, I just, in terms of the limits of apologetics, there's that wonderful prayer of his, the apologist's, apologist's evening prayer, evening prayer yes. where he talks about you know, all, all my lame defeats, but much more from my, my victories. victories. <laughs> Good Lord preserve us. Yes. Um, yeah. Where the kind of victory where the audience laugh and yes. angels weep. Yes. Um, which I've always found really mm. I- impressive. That yeah. He was so good at it, and yet he recognised very much the dangers of it and, the, and his own personal mm. dangers within it because mm. he was somebody of such verbal dexterity and yeah. mental dexterity that he probably could put people there yeah. um, and, mm. and was aware of that mm. personal mm. danger. Yes, mm. yes. He says in one place that there is no doctrine so blind to the eye of faith as the one which you have just successfully defended in public. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that poem, the Apologist's Evening Prayers, is a beautiful poem. It's all about how, you know, Jesus, when he, when people came to him for a sign, that he said, I'll give you no sign. I won't, I won't give you reasons. Uh, the only thing I'll point you to is this guy called Jonah, who was in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. That's the only sign I'll give. That's the only kind of defense or apologetic I will give you, Jesus says, and... And Lewis refers to that in the poem, and he says, you know, Lord of the narrow gate and the needle's eye, take from me all my trumpery, lest I die. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess, I suppose the, the other thing about Lewis's apologetics, as you were saying, is I suppose not, it, it is that it's almost primarily not so much a, an appeal to the reason, but to the imagination. And I mean, maybe, I well, to that, both. There's a, there's a, yeah. Yeah. But there's a much stronger element of, of, a, of appeal to the imagination than in many apologists. <clears throat> who are, yes. you know, maybe more rationalistic, yes. you know, offering reasons, evidence for mm. faith, whereas, and Lewis does that, but mm. he, uh, and even in Mirror Christianity, I mean, I always think that passage at the end where he talks about the, the, the new men mm. that God is creating, which is a very sort of Pauline idea, mm. is one that kind of, a, it's, it's, it's a very evocative mm. picture that appeals to the imagination mm. as much as the, as the, as the reason, mm. makes you long for it. Yes. And that sense of of longing and, and desire is a crucial thing yeah. in there as well, which again, going back to Augustine, is, a, is that sort of similar yes. similar theme. Uh, which, I mean, brings us on to the sort of Narnia stories. And, and mm. I mean, do, do you think, the, do you, I mean, to what extent were Narnia, the Narnia stories, works of apologetics for, mm. for Lewis? Um, quite a bit, I think. I mean, they didn't start out with any deliberate apologetic intent, according to his own account of why he wrote them. He just said they... They began with pictures in his mind's eye, which in some cases have been there for many decades. There was one particular image, he says, of a, of a fawn in a snowy wood carrying an umbrella and parcels, mm. which had been in As his mind's <laughs> <laughs> which had been in his mind's eye since he was, I think, sixteen. Really? And then one yeah. day, when he was about mm. nearly fifty, he um, he actually began to turn that into a story. Mm. Um, mm. Mm. It's a little bit like. Tolkien and The Hobbit, isn't it? Yeah, Hole in the Ground, The Lived a Hobbit. The Hobbit. He, yes. he didn't actually know what Hobbits were, I no. think, at that point. No. <laughs> yeah, he was just taking a break from examining boring papers, wasn't he? And yes. 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 He yes. found there a blank piece something of paper. creative <laughs> from that process. Yeah, but in Lewis's case, he's you know, as as I began to um, look at this picture in my mind's eye and, and turn it into a story, I began to see how it could be used to. Um, to steal past a certain inhibition about Christianity that had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood mm. because mm. as a child he had been told that he ought to feel certain things about Christianity, about the sufferings of Christ and so on and so forth and he said that an obligation to feel things can actually freeze mm. your feelings mm. Mm. and it's much better to strip Christianity of its 
stained glass and Sunday school associations and cast it into a magical setting, mm. a fantasy land in this case called Narnia, where you have dragons and giants and talking animals and battles and knights mm. and kings and queens and so on. And there, maybe, you, you can make Christianity, perhaps for the first time, appear in its real potency. You can steal past the watchful dragons of people's mm. inhibitions about Christianity. Mm. It's interesting that when he talks about how you should write, he, he says, um, you know, don't use adjectives mm. that are ways of telling the reader what to feel. Yes. Don't mm. use words like mm. terrible. Yes. Uh, it was terrible. To so describe what you're saying that they feel terrified. That's right. You, you, you're, otherwise, you're getting them to do your job yes. for you. Now, that's yes. precisely what he's trying to do, is yes. to, rather than to tell you what to feel, mm. to enable you narratively yes. to, to feel it. Absolutely. In the way he describes things yeah. and paintings. Yeah, and that, I think, is one of the main kind of apologetic strategies behind the Narnia books and a lot of Lewis's fiction, actually, that... Um, you know, uh, giving defences of Christianity is not just, um, uh, you know, making a case for certain propositions that you have have intellectually or mentally to assent to. Um, it's in large part um, introducing you to the emotional and imaginative meaningfulness of the Christian worldview. You know, what mm. would it be like to live in a world where certain things were true and how mm. would you feel as a result of that? Mm. So yeah, the, emo the address to the emotions, I think, is absolutely key in in the Narnia books. And I think the other the other supreme gift that Lewis has, um, and I don't think he's as great a writer as Shakespeare, but this he could do and Shakespeare couldn't, mm. which was to make goodness attractive. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I don't know many writers who've done that. And mm. Milton kind of famously fails yep. in the mm. sense that mm. Satan is a much more attractive character yes. than, mm. than God. The gospel yeah. writers did lost. a reasonable job of that, didn't they? Sorry? The gospel writers did a reasonable job. <laughs> yes, but they had the benefit of having somebody they were just describing. Um, whereas Lewis was, in fact... No, it's true. It is true. Creating it's, a, it's famously difficult to make goodness yeah. attractive mm. in that mm. way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, okay, he's drawing on the gospels. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he does this in a, in a way that I think is unique. Mm. Right? Mm. Yeah, but it, It'd be fascinating to, to know a little bit. I mean, for those listeners who haven't read the Planet Narnia and um, don't know anything about it, it'd be great to know just if you can, but a sort of brief summary of what it's about, and also how you how you kind of discover this sort of third layer of meaning as you're yeah. as you were talking about earlier on. Yeah, well, like I said, the Narnia books have you know for long long been recognised as having two levels of meaning: you know, the simple story level, which a five year old child can understand. Um. A level of biblical allegory, uh, which again is fairly simple, with Aslan, the Lion King, being a bit like Jesus, dying and rising in, in a traitor's stead and <clears throat> creating the world and judging the world, and things like that. Um, what's perplexed many Lewis scholars and readers over the years is, is, is why the books aren't more thoroughgoing in their biblical allegory because there are four books out of the seven where Aslan although he's like Jesus in various ways it doesn't seem to be enacting any particular episode of Christ's life or ministry he just does some seemingly random things you know he comes into Prince Caspian uh, that book um, amidst dancing trees and gives a great war cry and and um, and how does that relate to 
any major aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. It doesn't mm. doesn't seem to connect in the same way that several of the others do. So um, lots of Lewis scholars have thought, this is a bit odd. Does it just mean that he dashed the books off at random without any forethought or, or care? Or is there something else going on, something mysterious, something a bit hidden? And most people have thought there probably is something hidden. <clears throat> but so well hidden they didn't know what it was. They didn't, yeah, well, that's right. It's, you've, there's the sense there's something here that doesn't quite add up. Uh, there's something here that there's more going on here than meets the eye. And they don't kind of flow as a sort of natural... It's, like, it's not like Harry Potter where it sort of just is a... You know, one no. character or a set of characters that are sort of growing and they're getting right. older each time. Yeah. There's a natural narrative flow to it. You know, the horse and his boy seems a very different kind of story yes. from mm. the line which in the wardrobe. Yeah. And, and it, it does. It, it sort of feels slightly odd in that way, doesn't yes, it? Yes, they are very various and they, they don't seem to connect um, as you might expect them to. And yet, if you know anything about Lewis, you know that he was a very rigorous thinker. Um, had reasons for pretty much everything he ever wrote or said and wasn't the kind of writer who would be likely to just dash them off in an afternoon without much care. So that has led people to go looking for some kind of third level of significance that you know, might tie the books together a bit more satisfactorily and people have suggested all sorts of different possible solutions to this riddle like the seven deadly sins or the, um, hmm. or the seven Catholic sacraments or... Or the seven books of Spencer's Fairy Queen, which was one of Lewis's favourite poems. Mm. Um, but none of these theories has really convinced anybody, and none of them actually have been advanced very seriously. Anyway, I wasn't really um, focusing on this when I was studying C.S. Lewis myself. I, I was looking at a different aspect of his, of his writings altogether. When one night um, I was reading a long poem that C.S. Lewis wrote about the seven heavens, the seven planets of the medieval cosmos, when it struck me that there was a striking, you know, a remarkable similarity between how Lewis wrote about the planet Jupiter and mm. the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. In, in that Jupiter, according to medieval uh, astronomers, astrologers, thought that it, it was thought that Jupiter brought about winter past and guilt forgiven. Mm. Just those five words leapt off the page at me. Winter past and guilt forgiven. And, you know, that was the little spark that connected. Which could be a summary of The Lion, the Witch yeah, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, it could be a very <laughs> neat yeah. five-word summary yes. of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which is yeah. all about the passing of winter and the forgiving of Edmund's guilt. Yes. Yeah. So I looked more closely at these lines associated with Jupiter in this long poem, and a great deal of the imagery in the poem matched up with imagery in the book. And I tugged on this thread, and it just kept coming. And the more I looked into it, the more it just made perfect sense of, of mm. each Narnia book, of the series as a whole, and of the place of the series in the rest of Lewis's work. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. So anybody wants to read that, because you'd get hold of the, mm. of, the, uh, of the book, because it explains it in quite some detail, how the seven... Yes, planets sort of fit the seven books, and, yes. and how all that, and how it explains a lot of the sort of slightly random details yeah. within the mm. books themselves. Yeah, but it's, ha have sorry. you annoyed um, various parts of the Christian readership of the Narnia <laughs> books by, with this thesis? Does it seem, in some way, to detract from the apologetic purpose of the the books? I've been delighted actually with the response in general um, from Lewis aficionados around the world. Um, you know, the general response has been incredibly positive and enthusiastic. Mm. People are, are not just persuaded, they they are convinced, and they're not just convinced, they're kind of thrilled mm. that a, 
that these books turn out to be even better than we thought. Mm. Um, there is this whole new dimension of of care and forethought and mm. and skill and design in these books, um, which just makes them so much richer and and more interesting. Obviously, there are one or two naysayers, but um, they're in a very small minority. And and were there any of the planets that resisted arrest? And, <laughs> I mean, you kind of th- yeah, I can see five kind of work, but there were two. I don't know. Well, there was there a stage at which that kind of. Well, there was. I must confess, but but that was only down to my own ignorance, because um, I the 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 two planets that I couldn't immediately see a connection to the relevant chronicle with were Mars and Venus and I couldn't make up my mind whether Prince Caspian was Mars or Venus uh, or whether the magician's nephew was Mars or Venus and that's because I just didn't know much about Mars I mean everybody knows that Mars it's something you ease. <laughs> exactly. The Mars. We don't do adverts. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. Another one have to be chocolate in either of those books. Either. <laughs> Everybody knows that Mars is associated with war, yeah. the god of war, the planet of war. Um, and, you know, if you listen to Holst's Planet Suite, um, you know, it's a, it's a deafening, ferocious assault on the eardrums. Um, uh, and, you know, John Williams in Star Wars used, used it famously for, um, you know, his own soundtrack. I didn't know that Mars was also connected with trees and forests. Did you know that? Nope. No. Mm. No, until I began looking into it. Um, the Roman god of Mars was uh, as was originally a vegetation deity. Yeah. Um, and in fact, we, we do know this, though we've forgotten it, because the third month of the year, March, is sacred to Mars mm. in this capacity because it is in the month of March that the trees mm. come back to life after winter. So Mars was originally known as Mars Silvanus, god of trees mm. and forests. Trees. Yeah. And that is why Prince Caspian is the way that it is. But on the one hand, it's all about knights and chivalry and, uh, and a civil war in Narnia. But on the other hand, it's all about Aslan waking the trees, Lucy trying to wake the trees, the trees coming to the battle at the end of the book. Mm. Um, and the, the, and Narnia has become heavily afforested. Hasn't That's right. It? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the Telmarines, the the usurping Telmarines, are frightened of the forests. Yeah. Um, and so that was just my ignorance. I I knew nothing about mm. Mars Sylvanus. Mm. But when I began looking into it, Prince Caspian suddenly made beautiful sense. I mean, Lewis, of course, would have known about and, these yeah, things. Lewis, right? with a you know a classical, <laughs> classical education yeah. to rival anybody's, mm. um, knew about that from the age of six. Did he comment on whole the planets at all? Did he? He would have known it, presumably. Do we have any comments by him? Uh, on on Hulst's Planet yes, Suite? Yes. Yeah, he did listen to it and loved it very much. He said mm. it was rich and marvellous work that moved him very greatly. Mm. Um, he, uh, he liked the Saturn and Mars movements in particular. Mm. Didn't think much, actually, of Jupiter. Though I've always liked Jupiter especially. Um, so you are different from him. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis thought that that, you know, that, that uh, folk tune that Hulst put at the centre of the Jupiter movement which has now become a hymn tune. Yeah, music on the God Pod, first time. <laughs> he, thought, well, like he thought that tune wasn't sufficiently regal for his conception of the kingly Jupiter. Mm. And I, I think it's rather ironic that that tune, which is now the, the, the tune to the hymn, I vow to thee, my country, mm. has become you know a real favourite yeah. at royal occasions and is sung at royal weddings and... Um, you know, it's it's sufficiently monarchical for our own royal family, though it wasn't for Lewis. <laughs> what do you? I mean, this this extra layer of meaning and um, 
significance in the book. What, what do you think that adds to our reading of it and, and, and how the, the book works, say, for an ordinary reader? So if you have someone coming to the Narnia stories aware of, yeah. of this, this extra dimension, this sort of secret code, as mm. it were, that was, mm. that was written in there, that the stories are linked into the seven planets yeah. and so on. What does that add to it? What does it add to the apologetic? What does it add to, you know, how does it change our view of the books, do you think? Well, uh, it's a good question because in one sense it doesn't matter at all. Um, you can read these books and indeed you should read these mm. books without, first of all, bringing to them any knowledge of planetary symbolism. Mm. And that's how Lewis intended them to be read. You know, if he had wanted us to... Mm. Um, to treat the books as a series of crossword clues that needed deciphering, he would have given us um, some more clues. But that's because he wanted to address our imaginations rather than our intellects. Um, he, he used this symbolism, I think, as a kind of guiding thread, a unifying principle, a kind of governing logic to each story, so that he, the author, the designer of these seven worlds, knew what was the the uh, the imaginative DNA, if you like, mm. what was linking the portrayal of Aslan with the plot, with the ornamental details and so on. But he wasn't going to present it to us for our contemplation. He would just wanted to immerse us in that world so that we, at an imaginative or maybe intuitive level, would sense, yeah, there's more going on here than meets the eye. The, these things do cohere. They do resonate. There is harmony in this world, even though I can't put my finger on it and say what it is. Mm. Um, and that, I think, was was quite successful. Uh, in that, he was quite successful. Lo lo lots of people, long before I wrote Planet Narnia, were you know, commenting on this fact about the Narnia Chronicles that they seem to hang together mysteriously. Mm. I had a... a, a a priest friend who said to me once, you know, the Narnia Chronicles, they're great, aren't they? They're works of mystical theology. Um, mm. And that was before, mm. uh, you know, mm. I'd stumbled across this secret theme. But he had recognized it. He had intuited it. Mm. He knew there was more going on mm. in these books than met the eye. And I think that's, that was Lewis's main purpose, mm. that he was wanting to put into his chronicles the same sort of spiritual... Uh, uh, unifying principle that he believed was to be found in the actual cosmos because in the actual universe there is also, though it's hard to see a a governing thread a, a guiding, a, a unifying word spoken by God which runs through all things God is the one in whom all things hold together and, and I, I think, sorry, I, I think this brings us back in a sense to what you were saying about him being a unifying mm. uh, thinker mm. as an apologist and why he was so good as an apologist is that he wants to incorporate truth from wherever he finds it Absolutely. as much as he can. Yeah. Um, and you see that with his classical allusions, very positive towards, mm. he knows mm. when he has to disagree, but, mm. but where he can, he's going to mm. accept truth from whatever quarter. And yeah. you see that in... in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with um, the presence of Father Christmas, for instance. Mm. Here's a pagan thing being mm. brought into the service of Christ, mm. I think, in some way, in mm. many ways. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, partly why he's so widely mm. um, accepted by people is because he's trying to garner mm. all truth from all quarters and mm. bring it into, into harmony, into some sort oh, yeah. of unifying pattern. But the other thing that, I, that strikes me about it is, is that it isn't just Lewis sitting outside all of this thinking what would work well 
It's actually full of his own passion, isn't mm-hmm. it? And and so for me, your thesis really enhances the book because Lewis is um, pouring into it all the things that passionately roused his own imagination. Mm. The Christian story, the medieval stories that, that he loved and mm. that he devoted mm. his mm. scholarly life to. So um, I, I actually find it really enriching to think this wasn't an exercise for Lewis. Mm. It was expressing his own religious imagination mm, mm. and that's partly what draws us in isn't it it's, mm. it's not this sense that this is an interesting doctrinal problem neatly mm. put into a story mm. but it's a it is drawing us into a world in which um, yes. the the desire for god the, the the unity of the universe all of this is actually imagined and felt yes totally i think that's absolutely right that it's only because lewis loved these ideas, these traditions, these pictures, these symbols, that, you know, he was able to write about them so you know, winningly, winsomely. Mm. Mm. It, was, it wasn't just an exercise in, in bold apologetics, you know, trying to strong arm people into a certain emotional or doctrinal position. It was just revelry of a kind. Mm. Mm. I enjoy this, come and see what I'm enjoying, mm. as it were. Mm. And there's something sort of tantalizing about it as well, because I guess what you're Saying is you know, that that you know as you read these books, you're kind of meant to think, mm, there's more to this than mm. meets the eye. Yeah. This seems to hold together in some way. I can't quite put my finger yes. on it, but it does. Yes. And that, in a sense, is a very interesting apologetic strategy because that's a kind of that's what, what, to do with life. what we do with <laughs> yeah. life. We sort yes. of feel, well, it does seem to make sense in some way. Yes. We can't see that it does. Yeah. There's no obvious answer but it does seem to make sense right. which yeah. points you towards yes god in a very yes. a very tantalizing yes way yeah and it's it's also a very socratic method that lewis isn't putting yeah. out on a plate mm. he isn't force feeding you um or making obvious his point he's just assembling a set of of mm. ideas and images and as it were, leaving you to ask the relevant mm. questions, leaving you to follow up these dangling threads, which is the is a good Socratic method of teaching. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, the the best method of teaching is to, is to wait for the pupil to ask the right question, yep. and then the answer will be much more acceptable mm. because you have developed the appetite for it. And I think that's one one of the very attractive things about Christianity is that it suggests there is more to everything that meets the eye. I mean, reductionism kind of says there's less Mm. to everything that meets the eye. And actually, my experience of any subject is that there's always more. There's always more there than you thought. There's a a lovely bit in, I can't remember which which Narnia story it is, where one of the children says to Aslan how much you've grown. And Aslan says that's because you have. Yes. And um, mm. and that is what we want to say as Christians, isn't it? The more you explore God, mm. the bigger it That's is. Right. It isn't yes. that you're going to get all the answers. Yes, mm. yes mm. absolutely. Mm. He says, uh, each year you grow, you will find me bigger. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it is that, um, yeah, it's that sense of, of an apologetics that focuses upon it's this idea of longing, I think, which is, which is mm. a very powerful theme. Yeah. And yes. that longing for God that draws you mm. uh, not to a, a set of answers, but to mm. a, this person mm. which is why you know aslan is presented as this very kind of attractive mm. but powerful character at the heart of it all yeah you find that particularly i think in in what is for me the my favorite of the narnia books the voyage of the dawn treader mm. where this idea of longing 
uh, yearning for mm. unity with God, or in this case Aslan, or Aslan's country, the eastern edge of the world, is, uh, is the motivating yeah. force mm. behind this character called Reaper Cheap, who's mm. longing to get there. Mm. And it's been prophesied ever since he was a small mouse that he was going to, mm. to reach Aslan's country, and that's mm. what drives him um, yeah. forward. And um, that was a very significant feature of Lewis's own pilgrimage, actually. Mm. This mm. this longing, this yearning. You get that joy. in the Pilgrim's Regret, don't you? Yes, quite a lot. Where his own kind of sense of longing. And, yeah. Mm. One last question, Michael. Out of all Lewis's books, which is your favourite? Um, well, it's a toss-up for me between The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and uh, a book which Lewis thought was perhaps his best work, but which is relatively little known. It was his last novel called Till We Have Faces, hmm. which is a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche, which makes it sound hmm. you know, horribly abstruse and esoteric, but actually it isn't. It's immensely readable. And it's a stunning novel. It's a stunning, stunning novel, novel, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's the favourite one of the Archbishop of Canterbury you might be interested oh, in. Oh, is it? Yeah, I was always struck by the... I think it's the last sentence of, of the book where um, I think it... It goes. I was just jotted it down down here. It says, um, you know, well, the, the main character says, you know, I ended my first book on the words, no answer, but I now know why you offer no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer could suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words. Yeah. Which is a fascinating. Again, mm. thinking about apologetics, mm. that. Um, it can so easily become words, words let out yes. to be battled against other words, which never get you any far. And that sense of the silence of God is, mm. is 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 a way of saying, well, you, know, you are the answer. And that yes. says so much about Lewis and so much about mm. Christian faith in mm. a way that it, it it always goes, you know, it needs words, but it goes beyond words. That's right. I wonder if I can just do a little kind of personal testimony to Lewis, because he's been very important in my own uh, journey, not just intellectually, but... Um, the year before I was ordained, I went through a kind of year of, of great doubt and depression and sense of the absence of God, I think, such as Lewis mm. um, talks about there. Uh, and I had to decide whether to go ahead and get ordained or not. Um, not sure what I believed, not sure my emotional state, mm. uh, and I had, I had to make that decision. And a friend of mine pointed me to um, two bits of Lewis, that um, helped me make that decision. One was um, the bit at the beginning of the voyage, um, voyage to Venus. Paraland, yes. Yes, where he um, comes off the train and has to walk to Renson's house and goes through this emotional barrage. Yes. And that just made me realise that Lewis knew what I was going through. I had <laughs> never read anything mm. that gave that impression before that described how it felt. Mm. Um, and the other was a bit from the Scrutate Letters, where Scrutate says, um, our cause, i.e. The, enemy, uh, the enemy's cause, uh, is never more in danger than when a human being looks around uh, on a world from which every trace of the enemy seems to, of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been abandoned and still obeys. Mm. And it was that that got me to go ahead mm. and be ordained, so he's afraid he's got a lot to answer. <laughs> 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 you would not be here today. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you very much for coming in today. It's My been pleasure. fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this God has been a little bit longer than normal, but we wanted to um, mm-hmm. make use of the time you gave us. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my watch. so uh, thank you very much, as always, to Jane and to Michael. Thank, thank you. you. And especially to the other Michael. 
happy to see it. It's hard. And um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would have been easy. And uh, so we'll be back again for Godpod 62 before too long. That was Godpod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.